This particular work uh, is done uh, with two colleagues in Kennedy School, Matt Pritchard and uh, Matt Andrews. Uh, we've been wrestling with stuff uh, individually for much of our careers, and over the last four years or so have uh, uh, hitched our wagons, as it were, to uh, bring together very different disciplines and very different uh, sectoral experiences to try and uh, tackle a common problem. That common problem is the question of implementation. Um, I'm sure many of you, your students, are asked to finish your research papers with the final two or three pages called Policy Implications. And uh, the, the whole focus of doing that is to try and write something that uh, notionally should be done differently in the world as a result of, uh, as a result of your analysis. And that's the way that uh, many applied research papers are in development. It's how most of the policy discourse uh, conducts itself. Um, but to those of us that are now uh, thinking about trying to think about these things uh, a little more closely, we're recognizing, I think, as are a lot of people now, uh, that the effectiveness of our interventions uh, is only partially determined by the content and design of those, uh, those particular policies and projects themselves. They're deeply conditional on the capability of systems to be able to actually deliver them. And that's really not what has been the focus of much of the lending, certainly at the World Bank, or of, of, of most of the donors um, forever. <laughs> um, and so we have this very big conundrum, I think, of how we try and shift uh, an apparatus largely concerned about uh, technical aspects of policy design, which certainly has its place and is entirely appropriate for a certain class of interventions. Um, but for many of the countries that we are uh, working on, indeed most developing countries almost by definition, really struggle to do a lot of the non-logistical tasks. If you travel around most developing countries now, and I was in, for example, rural Aceh a few months ago, you will see a school, you will see a building called a health clinic, you will see the basic rudiments of, of the beginnings of systems that, have, that are very important achievements in their own right, but they simply weren't there at all before. Um, but not much learning is actually occurring inside that building called the school. Not much health happening <laughs> is going on inside the health clinic. Um, and indeed, a lot of other things aren't happening, even though in, on paper and in principle, a lot of those things might appear to be there. Uh, one of our common examples is uh, Uganda, for example, which has a corruption law rated 99 out of 100 by Global Integrity, an NGO um, in uh, Washington that scorecards an array of different anti-corruption laws around the world. Uganda looks great on paper. Um, in a perverse moment of, uh, <laughs> of policy advising, when the three of us showed up in Uganda uh, 18 months ago, we had the screaming headline in the newspaper on the day we arrived was $280 million cancelled an aid funding because of corruption scandal. Right? So the laws can look fantastic, and we can have a whole bunch of professionals and experts and other people with uh, fancy degrees from Harvard and Oxford showing up to advise a lot of these countries on the content of what their wording should be of their laws and their policies, what the organizational chart should look like, a whole bunch of things, um, and yet we can worry much less about whether those systems underlying that, um, uh, that's, that superstructure or, that, or those initial um, words can actually deliver. So if, for example, we have a lot of research being done that shows that microfinance works or the conditional cash transfers work, um, on what pretext would we then actually imagine that the Somalis or the South Sudanese governments could actually do that? And those are sort of moderately difficult tasks, but many of the tasks that they actually confront as fragile states is in fact 
some of the most difficult things that took this country, took my country, Australia, took most of the OECD countries centuries to figure out, to build up systems that could actually do things like effective criminal justice reform, which is one of the hardest things that governments do, or regulate multinational companies, or stand up to a Fortune 500 companies with lawyers who paid 5,000 pounds an hour to be able to uh, enact their particular interests around petroleum exports, for example. So a lot of what we're asking governments to do in the name of policy implications turns out to be um, wonderful to look at and nice to read, but actually way more difficult, phenomenologically difficult, ontologically difficult in terms of actually trying to make it happen. So this is what we're trying to do, and this is, a, this is a one version of a paper that we did that was uh, won a nice prize in the most uh, recent American Sociological Associations meetings, but it's really a, a sort of one component of a larger agenda, and some people in this room were able to be with us two weeks ago at the Kennedy School where we convened a whole range of practitioners from around the world who are trying to do versions of responding to this particular challenge. So what I want to do today is to uh, outline, uh, let's see if we can get this happen, to, I'm going to start by outlining what I call it, it's a basic development dilemma, the fact that a lot of our indicators for human welfare on, for the most part, seem to be doing pretty well. Um, but our uh, measures of institutional capability are flatlining or declining. And so we have a paradox to explain about how it is that lousy institutions are able to achieve, on paper at least, um, some pretty nice uh, sounding and, and in many, many cases quite laudable achievements. I'm going to suggest, though, that um, we've done a lot of the relatively easy things in development. Uh, we're at a particularly crucial moment existentially for development professionals. Um, partly because we face increasing skepticism about whether this thing called development actually works or can be do <coughs> what it claims or aspires to do. Um, but we also face a world where the challenges of implementation are only going to intensify, and they're only going to intensify whether we succeed or whether we fail. <laughs> They're only going to intensify if we succeed, because every time we succeed in producing more literate people and healthier people and people who are able to be aware of what else is going on in the world, the, the less likely they are to be satisfied with their prevailing situation and the less likely to be demanding greater reforms from their own government, or in a much less happy situation when we fail. And countries literally go into meltdown, and uh, countries like South Sudan are unable to, seemingly for now, seem to be unable to take on the responsibilities of what is minimally required of the government, we are in situations of great sadness and tragedy. So, I'm going to make a somewhat bold claim today that building state capability for implementation is pretty much the 21st century development challenge. It's not about arguing about whether particular interventions work, though that has its place, um, and uh, when I'm sounding critical at both Harvard and Oxford for people that are otherwise obsessing about trying to find very precise estimates about very particular kinds of interventions, that matters in its own right and it's important for getting publication because most of what lead journals care about is the, the rigor of your identification and all that stuff, and that's important. Um, but the, the, I think the higher order questions are, even if you have a squeaky clean result, even if you believe what you're telling me about the the success or non-success of a particular intervention you're talking about for particular people in a particular place. Um, the bigger question is the generalizability of all of that, and then the question of whether, from an advising point of view, we know how to give sensible advice to governments on the basis of what their existing systems are actually able to do right now. And as I will show you some slides coming up, um, we have a great reason to be concerned that empirically and just in a everyday sense, the 
uh, quality of institutions to do a lot of the relatively easy things, let alone the much harder things, uh, is lagging. And we have to have a, we as researchers, I think, should be directing much more of our energies into going back to a lot of seemingly old-fashioned, boring sort of questions around bureaucracies and how they function and how we can make them do a much better job. Because we live in a world of bureaucracies. Modern life is possible because of a whole array of bureaucracies that we move in and out of seamlessly. So today, for example, I've flown from Dublin. I've flown through, I've wanted to write down probably 20 at least different uh, amazing bureaucracies that ensure planes fly safely in the air, that they land and don't collide when they come into uh, the Heathrow Airport. We have electricity, we have air conditioning, we have wonderful PowerPoint systems. All of these are modern creations and are overseen and maintained seamlessly and boringly uh, by effective institutions. And getting to a world where most of what we care about is actually boring <laughs> is the achievement, I think, of development. It's not about making it cool, it's making it boring because it's been routinized and incorporated into everyday life such that it becomes the new normal. But getting to that sort of world is, I think, is a far cry from where we often find ourselves. So that's where I'm going to go with uh, our stuff today. I'm going to open by two, with two big master metaphors that I think uh, help to capture a large part of what I think is the the zeitgeist of what I'm talking about. And some of this, of course, can always be traced back to the great Albert Rushman. Um, really encourage you to read his biography that came out last year of an extraordinary life that lived over the, the course of the 20th century. But one of his lesser known books is Journeys Towards Progress, which is a discussion of his, his uh, attempts to try and engage in this thing called policy advising in Latin America. And there's this nice phrase where he says that among many of the eminently quotable quotes that one can take from his work, but the term implementation understates the complexity of the task of carrying out projects that are affected by a high degree of initial ignorance and uncertainty. Here, project implementation may often mean, in fact, a long voyage of discovery in the most varied domains from technology to politics. Right? Initial ignorance. <laughs> Another big thing I want to really focus on, much of what we do in development should be framed with the initial, initial words, I don't know. <laughs> initial ignorance, right? And once you're in a space of initial ignorance, and don't see yourself as a purveyor of, ex of expert knowledge about, um, and, and your ability to be able to dispense great wisdom to uh, some other countries about how they should be uh, doing things but rather see ourselves as fellow navigators on a long voyage of discovery. I think that's as a master metaphor for thinking about how we engage in expressions of state capability, not about trying to bring in blueprints from elsewhere or trying to import best practices and tools that have been verified through rigorous evidence and some other concept. Rather, see ourselves as co-creators on a, on a journey of, of uh, on a long journey of, of uh, a long voyage of discovery. Another one that goes back even further. I've spent much of the last uh, 16 years or so working uh, in Indonesia as part of uh, my baptism into the world of, uh, of, of policy and projects uh, as a staff member of the World Bank. And one of the money quotes from uh, before the, the, the tail end of the colonial period comes from Hara, uh, who's uh, an Indonesian educator. And uh, this is long, but it bears reading, I think. And he was lamenting at the, at the tail end of, uh, of the colonial period as they were embarking on this sort of transitioning into becoming an independent country. He says, slowly but surely, we have become alienated from our own people and our own environment. This alienation would have been bearable had it not been that in our case, the abandonment of our own culture did not at the same time bring access to another civilization. Thus, we have sacrificed what was ours 
but have not gained in its place anything that might be considered superfluous. We have lost our world, but we have not entered another. We have added much new cultural material, the value of which cannot be discounted. However, it often fits so ill with our own style, or is so far removed from it, that we can use it at best as decoration, and not as material to build with. It is quite understandable why we, we have been so mistaken in our choice. In the first place, much has to be chosen, and there has been so little to choose from. That's a lament from uh, 90 years ago, or so 80 years ago now. Um, and I think that's a very powerful statement about this development process. Uh, as lived uh, by people of Thailand in the colonial period, I think by many people in developing countries now. That very real sense that something has been lost, something coherent, something real, something tangible, that define their identities, their livelihoods, and uh, their lives more generally. But they haven't mentioned anything else. They're in this netherworld. I don't know where they are. They've lost, they're in this uh, very existentially crazy space between a world that seems to have been disrupted, uh, a world that, uh, <coughs> for all of its imperfections, was at least understood and navigatable, but find themselves in this, other, in this space that has not yet been created. And I think what development uh, professionals have so often done is provide material that fits so well with what that remaining circumstance is. And I think that's the kind of way in which we should be thinking much more seriously about this thing called good governance or institutional reform or building the rule of law or any of the other kind of tropes that we throw out for, for engaging with these kind of questions. Because unless we see them as uh, problems that require <coughs> long voyages of discovery and that require helping ourselves as much as our ostensible counterparts to navigate transitions between, wor between worlds, uh, between worlds ruled by men to worlds ruled world where there's greater gender equality, so a world ruled by strong men to a world ruled by law, those are pretty basic sort of ideas in, uh, in development, and yet they are really quite fundamental in terms of the challenges they uh, place on other people and the challenges they put on the instruments and instrumentalities that uh, development wields in the name of trying to do this thing called development. Okay, so that's on that, on that sort of bigger note. Let's get slightly more empirical. <laughs> um, I'm now going to document what we'll call a development dilemma. Over the course of my lifetime, and the course of most lifetimes, certainly of people in this room, uh, we've lived during very uh, un historically unprecedented uh, improvements in human development. Um, the most development goals in most countries have been, have been attained. Uh, through no other 50-year period of human history have there been demonstrable improvements, as we'll see shortly in a separate slide. A longevity uh, in terms of kids enrolling in schools, the ends of uh, most of the diseases that were the scourge of human history. If you had to be had to nominate randomly a period in history in which you would want to be born, I would wager very powerfully that you would want to be born or at least be around now. <laughs> if you have children that are ill, if you have children that are on the point of needing serious brain surgery or blood transfusions or any of these things, all that stuff, you would want to be cutting edge. And that coming in stuff, by definition, is happening right now. And so I think a part of our story as development professionals should not be just always having to defend the laments about failed projects and corruption and bad guys in developing countries doing awful things. Um, one can tell a story, a very accurate story, of the fact that, um, at least in the, in, the, in the domain of some of the most basic measures that we've collected over long periods of time, life's been pretty good. And even much of Africa is uh, um, way better off than it used to be. Now, that's not to, we'll see shortly, this is an important qualifier to all that, though 
much of the unhappiness in the world is born in places where those have not, in fact, been attained. But on aggregate, um, both regionally and the level of countries, um, much of the improvement is very much in that happier red space. The dilemma is that we can't see equivalent kinds of improvements in institutional policy. There's some slides coming up shortly that uh, document that more formally. Um, but to the extent we've been able to, uh, over the last 20 years or so, start to uh, get very imperfect, very noisy, and uh, otherwise very uh, com <laughs> compromised, in some sense, data on institutional quality, what data we have is, is telling a, a much more sobering story. And the dilemma is, how did we get such good things to happen with such lousy institutions? Um, how did this happen? Why does it matter? And uh, what do we do about it? And I think that's what I want to do for the remainder of my time here today. So let's just uh, go through a few more details. Um, I'm going to mention the Millennium Development Goals, some nice factoids that one can tell now is that the average Bangladeshi, for example, is in school longer than the average uh, French person was back in 1960. I think that's pretty amazing. I think that in terms of years of education, um, Bangladeshi now gets as much as France did now, in 1960. The obvious sort of point at that point should be, <laughs> I bet the quality of the education they got was wildly different, and you would be exactly right. But we've set up things like the Millennium Development Goals to measure butts on seats, right? Enrollment goals. They've not been, our kids actually learning anything when they show up for that place called school. We've set attendance as largely as our metric, because we could. Um, and for the most part, as I said, we've done that. So, it's not that the kids aren't showing up for school, they're there. The problem is that education and learning isn't happening. Let's be out. Uh, we've seen relative number of ways absolute declines in the various different uh, poverty measures. Uh, I'm sure that one can uh, show similar things with uh, the multidimensional poverty stuff that you guys are doing here. I've mentioned the diseases. Um, over the course of the 20th century, life expectancy has doubled from the mid-30s um, now to the mid-60s um, in some cases, even in developing countries in the high 60s. Okay? So, and most of that, I think, is to be celebrated. Because that's an unambiguous improvement in human welfare, much of it occurring in the lifetime of uh, people in this room. Um, and so, even if you took an even longer sweep, um, much of these big gains, I think, you, uh, this is an extension of work from the uh, from Nobel Prize winner Bob, Bob Fogel's book from uh, a decade or so ago now, but basic sort of demographic story that he's telling there is that this, the world history will show that in, there was this 400-year window, essentially it was something the year 1700 and 2100, when the world went from being uh, mostly poor to being mostly non-poor. That we essentially will, if you just take at face value, these demographic projections that the world will have escaped from hunger and premature death over a 400-year period. So if we were looking at this 600 years down the track, historians would be writing this amazing account of what happened in this 400-year window. Um, but the big qualifier on all of that, I think, among many qualifiers one can and should add, um, is that there's nothing foreordained about where that's going to go into the future. The demographic projections at face value would suggest we're going to have a nice soft landing by the, by the year 2100. Um, but I think for good sociological, political theory and other kinds of reasons, there's a lot to worry about for precisely where we are now in the early 21st century about uh, what, whether these kinds of gains have been achieved so far will continue. We have long historical episodes where seeming progress was halted, it's called the Dark Ages. <laughs> we have higher countries that were once one of the richest in the world. Argentina in the late 19th century, now ranked 70th in the world. 
We have countries right now that are melting down as we speak, like Venezuela, that were also one of the richest countries in the mid 20th century and now are way down, way down the list. Um, and one doesn't have to be too spooked by Ebola or any of the other big crises that are now taking on the world to realize that a lot of this can unravel. We should never take for granted the fact that we live in a world uh, through bu of bureaucratic systems that make our modern life possible. It, can, it has unraveled in the past, and it could well do so in the future again. Um, so the big open question, I think, um, this is the line I use with my students at the Kennedy School, why I think now is the best time to be alive. Now is the best time to be alive because scientifically we have, by definition, most of the latest uh, technologies that we have available to make life better. And we now can, in fact, feed every human on the planet, even if the political economy and food distribution warps all of that. Right? In principle, without historical precedent, we now have enough uh, technological capability to be able to feed people, to get rid of most of the preventable diseases. Um, what we have uh, not yet figured out and have never figured out, since Plato first wrote on government, <laughs> and we'll still be worrying about another 3,000 years if we're still around, um, is how we manage ourselves, how we deal with power, how we deal with rising and falling of different coalitions of power, and I think in this early part of the 20th century, we are very much living through periods where uh, um, all of this can continue in much happier directions, or all of it can unravel. And which it will be, I suggest, will largely turn on the quality of the institutions that we build to try and manage both our interstate, but especially in the first instance, our intrastate uh, systems of service delivery, our systems of grievance redress, our systems of justice and governance. Uh, what we've also seen, of course, is these wildly diverging uh, fortunes. So even if rich and poor countries are both growing at 2%, for example, the basic math of that is that that, that will only continue to uh, put poor, bigger absolute differences between poor and rich countries. So the kinds of accelerations that are still required in, in poor countries to even begin to start catching up with, uh, with today's richest countries, OECD countries, you know, are still astronomical. And, and current growth rates, while they're absolutely good in terms of uh, doing all those nice things that we just talked about on earlier slides, the reality is that we still live in this very divergent world that's only continuing to diverge even when uh, we see that uh, the poor uh, developing countries are still uh, growing even at uh, 3 or 4%. It's still nowhere near enough in absolute terms to really uh, can, uh, change some of the shape of that distribution. The more sobering story, though, I think for those of us concerned with trying to worry about implementation, is the fact that, the, as I mentioned before, the various different data sets we now have around the world that try and capture some of the trajectories associated with our, our institutional quality are telling very sobering stories, in fact, very uh, disconcerting stories. So this is just a simple array of data looking at uh, over a 10-year period between 1998 and 2008, more or less when we've got sort of a full, as big a data set as we can. Uh, these are the countries that started off fairly uh, well, and these are the looks thing at the, uh, this is how they started, and this is how they grew. <laughs> and so the green countries are the ones that started off pretty well and have, done, have kept on doing so. The usual suspects, the Singapore's, the Chile's, the Taiwan's. Um, the much larger, 68 of the 98 countries that we have this data for, are telling a much more sobering story of flatlining or declining with regards to their institutional quality. This comes from the quality of governance data that uh, Drew Rothstein and his colleagues uh, collecting Gothenburg University in uh, Sweden. But you can tell pretty similar stories with uh, World Bank's governance indicators, and the, the various and other justice and rule of law indices. They're all pretty strongly correlated with each other, it turns out, um, because they're built on each other. <laughs> That's another story. Uh, 
the indicative points for, for present purposes is to say that at least, no matter which data set you use, you don't see anywhere near the, the, the levels of institutional improvement that uh, would, you would think would otherwise be driving much of the, uh, the improvements in the human development in this data space. And you don't see, uh, as we'll see shortly, much sense of the, of the strength of the institutions to be able to do not just these basic tasks, but to do the more uh, complicated and contentious tasks that they need to do. So let's go a bit more into that. Um, before we do, let's just take one, one snapshot of a country and look at its, uh, its trajectories over time. Haiti's sort of slightly exaggerated case because it's been uh, independent for 200 years. And so if we assume to give it the best you know, shot it can at this particular exercise, assume that 200 years ago Haiti was Somalia. Somalia is a country that always falls at the bottom of anyone's listing of, of state capability. So if uh, Somalia became independent sort of somewhere out here, <laughs> the trajectory of, of improvement is that. And so it's going to take until we're down at Wharton College before it's uh, anywhere near the levels of Singapore. Right? Really, really flat levels of trajectories. Tragically, in fact, if you just look at the last 10 years and not 200 years, Haiti's going down and it's getting worse. It's not improving at all. Um, but most of our lending, most of our advising, always seems to assume implicitly, if not explicitly, that they should at least be able to do what average developing countries to do, if not what the fastest 20 developing countries should be able to do. Right? So it's these big mismatches between <coughs> what history says they have achieved, what modern history says they have actually achieved, and what we would aspirationally like for developing countries in general, but what we seem to set by targets uh, with regards to only what the best countries have been able to do. And I think that wedge between what the existing systems can do and what we ask them to do, um, and in our paper on this, we call this premature load bearing. It's this idea of asking too much um, of too little, too soon, too often. Um, asking systems to be able to do complicated things that demonstrably they just can't and thereby delegitimizing and compromising the very process of institutional reform, which you're basically foreordaining failure. Right? So you have this, these cycles, I think, are, are very uh, unhappy and self-perpetuatingly unhappy, because they're just like uh, driving a truck over a paper grid. The grid just inherently was going to collapse no matter how much you might want it not to do something. Um, we have not just big picture kind of data sets that we can call on. We can use some experimental data. We can use anthropological data. We can some of our own field experience from our Justice for Reform work at the World Bank on, on, on three different kinds of topics. So I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at three different bodies of research. My stuff has been tending to be down here, but there's some pretty nifty other stuff that's been done elsewhere. I think, again, the stories are pretty sobering. Let's just look at simple tasks like delivering mail. Delivering mail is great to look at because it's the most logistical, least controversial, most boring task that governments do. Right, deliver the mail. No one stands with a gun at your door stopping the mailman from putting his little post things through the door. Um, but you all routinely will check on your mail every day because it's just been happening forever and it's been routinized, made boring, so it actually works. Right? Um, now, as it turns out, 157 countries in the world are signatories to the International Postal Agreement. And it's a long, complicated international document. But one of the some clauses in that document says, um, each country that's a signatory to this will send back to the country of origin any envelope that arrives in that country that is misaddressed, or just for which there is no corresponding address in the actual country. So some behavioral economist types at Harvard for years picked up <coughs> that and said, oh, let's test that out. Right? So what they did was to 
prepare 10 misaddressed envelopes and send it to all 157 countries that were signatories to this international agreement, set their stopwatch and see how long it was to take them to send it in the back. There was a requirement, the rule, the thing they signed up to would say within 30 days they would send it back. Well, let's see what they did. Um, good. What are you doing? You're not working. Yes, there we go. Okay, so delivering the mail, literally. <laughs> Testing the post office in 150 countries. We have Czechs and Finns and Uruguayans and, and Colombians in the room. You won the prize for having the most, uh, the, the post office that won this little simple test of your, of your effectiveness. 90% of those came back within 90 days, within three months of them being sent out. Um, and you're not the usual suspect countries either. We're in this lowest 25. Even countries like Nigeria, Egypt, Russia, you would think, you know, I have post offices for decades. Why can't they? do this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, now, one can, uh, I don't want to make too much of this, one can find out maybe under, under resourced post offices just say, this address envelopes is not worth the effort and time, we're going to channel our finite money into actually delivering the real mail, whatever. <laughs> the point is, uh, as a nice, another little indicative test of a real world test of the most basic, the most non-controversial, entirely logistical, entirely automated, can't corrupt it task that governments do, deliver the mail, pretty sobering stories about um, how that actually happens around the world. Now, I'm going to try and get back the slide if I can. Uh, yeah. Now, another wonderful, just to go from experiments to anthropology, just to show that this is uh, a range of different interesting disciplines working on this stuff. A wonderful book that you should read um, by Apple Gupta looks at the anthropology of a huge big development program in India, which is incredibly progressive. It was a, a big innovation to provide uh, financial assistance to, uh, in effect, elderly women with, with few children and not much land. Okay? So it was a, a very progressive policy. Everybody thought it was great. I'm assuming everybody in this room thinks it's wonderful as well. Uh, for a poor country to be able to enact, a, in effect, a, a, a national pension system for well, half of its population, so 600 uh, billion, that are, or what percent, whatever percentage of those women are over the age of 50, um, to be able to give them uh, a basic income support so that in their sunset years they can live life with dignity and can have some, some uh, basic resources available to them. So the first part of the book is all this about the, all of the, the high-fiving that happens when the activists succeed in getting this thing through Parliament. It's great, it's a new war, and everybody's thrilled, as they should be, uh, that something like this has been passed. Because it's, it's really to even have something like a project in, enacted in law, obviously that kind of action has to all happen. Um, and it's kind of the stuff that I think most of the uh, people in development now would see themselves as doing. And uh, they policy reformers, they see them as designing, uh, trying to write out the words of all these documents and figuring out how to buy off the votes and to appease the different people that might be uh, enemies of this project and getting it through. So he has a big discussion about that. But the tragedy of the book um, is what happens once all the high-fiving is over and a system actually has to try and do this project. Okay? So I mentioned four different criteria. I said that it was targeted towards women, but that wasn't that hard to figure out. <laughs> um, they could, they could, when it came to implementing the program targeted at women, that, that was relatively straightforward. Um, the second criteria I mentioned was that it was for women over the age of 50. Um, and then the wheels started to fall off. But it turned out that it's really hard <laughs> for people to prove how old they were. And it eventually for, fell to frontline implementers to be able to determine how old people are. So to coin the old baseball joke to the uh, umpire at the end of his career was asked, sort of, so big guy, how do you tell the difference between the balls and the strikes? And he says, 
until I call it, it ain't nothing. Right? <laughs> so you come before me and you say you're 52 because that, you know that's what you need to be to get the program, and someone at the back of the queue who doesn't like you goes up to five, he's only 45. Right? You become what I say you are, and that all of this power invested in essentially in frontline um, implementers of these programs who could obviously use that that same power for darker purposes and uh, and using it for all sorts of <coughs> awful things as well. Same applied. Well, the other more anthropological point was all of that was presumed that people measure their age in years, and he has a nice discussion on uh, several on several pages about. But many of these people for whom this project is targeted don't even think of their life in terms of age on, of their age in terms of years on the planet. Right? That's how you would axiomatically, I would axiomatically answer that question. If you were challenged, you would go back to our driver's license and your passport, and we could feed into a computer and calculate literally the number of days you have been on the planet. Right? Many of these women in rural Bihar, for example, just don't even conceive of themselves as being on the or having birthdays, for example. They don't celebrate them. They have no concept of age. They have no birth certificate, they have no documentation of any kind to, to show how long they've been on the planet. Right? So, the great progressive project targeted for women over 50s begins to unravel on something that should be incredibly straightforward. And it would be straightforward to everybody in this room to prove how old you are. Right? Then it goes into how many kids have you got? Right? I said two. Um, how many kids have you got? You've got as many kids as I say you've got. Because right? there's no birth certificates, no way of proving whether this screaming kid is actually yours or somebody else's. Right? So there's no way of verifying that. And how much land do you have? That's even worse, because that's even more fraught. There's no land administration system. Right? So all of the cool kids that managed to succeed in getting their nice uh, policy reform enacted, um, and they should be celebrated for that, because it was a huge political accomplishment <coughs> to get something like that enacted into a developing country of 1.2 billion people. Right? But when we don't have the equivalent kind of energy and resourcing and technologies and political strategies in place for dealing with these moderately difficult kinds of tasks, then all of these things are unraveled, And they become instruments of, of, of corruption, they become instruments of social control, or worse. And <clears throat> I think a large part of what it's going to take to be able to figure out how to, to respond to the kinds of challenges that uh, Gupta rightly raises in his book is how we as scholars, how we as uh, scholar practitioners can engage with these very fundamental questions about building the capability to do these things, to deliver the ground, to be able to enact relatively progressive social policies. Right? And that's not even the hard stuff, because <laughs> most people when push comes to shove would want elderly women with not many kids to be able to have some basic social support in life. That's not controversial. The really, really hard stuff is when you start messing with people's land, when you start messing with their uh, their justice systems, when you start messing with their courts, when you start messing with their justice systems. And that's really where a lot of the really uh, contentious stuff historically has happened and continues to happen today. Right? So um, if you look at the achievements that probably humanity is most proud of, right? getting women the vote, uh, promoting gender equality, uh, ending slavery, ending colonialism, ending apartheid, uh, the civil rights movement, right? Those are the big, super complicated, messy, ugly, nasty, vicious political tasks that governments have to try and figure out. And nowhere on the earth was that ever resolved without lots of bloodshed and lots of violence and lots of great uh, deep uh, contention. Um, I heard an address last week by the president of the African Development Bank who uh, as his second slide, Mark Mazow's book on, uh, on Europe in the 20th century, he says, 
why are you guys so critical of what's going on in Africa? You Europeans blew yourselves up twice before you could figure out how to solve your problem. We're not up to 20 million people having died yet, so we're actually doing pretty well. So I don't think you guys would like to spend some advice to us on how we should be dealing with our governance problems, right? Anyway, <laughs> that's a side point. For the present purposes, people like Ruby Bridges and other people who are the front line of, of bringing about racial inequality, uh, in this case of uh, desegregated schooling in the United States, none of that happened just because of a nice thing called policy implications at the end of a paper somewhere. Right? It happened because activists were willing to uh, risk jail, risk being beaten up, risk being... Uh, um, unable to be employed because of the their, because of the associations that they were starting to make, and those are the big ones that uh, we really need to confront. And variants on that, if not even more uh, stronger versions of those kinds of problems, are what the 21st century is going to hold. As developing countries actually succeed in doing a lot of these earlier things, right? Once they know where the next meal is coming from, where they know how to operate a cell phone, where they know how to read and write, once they know how to be able to ensure that they're going to be, um, be minimally healthy, all those good phase one development tasks, as it were. The phase two stuff and the phase three stuff is all about moving into the into the Akilgupta space in phase two. In phase three, figuring out how to do with all that sort of stuff. Right? And at the moment, as we saw, even the male is, uh, is beyond uh, too many countries in the world. So that's why I'm deeply worried about institutions. Because it's only going to get more, it's only going to get more intense as we, uh, as we succeed in development. And yet that's just not where the center of gravity of thinking in most development work is right now. It's who's got the nifteous randomized control trial, who's got the nifteous little thing, and we're going to try and find out some very tiny little part of, a, of, of one little thing, which is important in its own way. So I, and I've participated in some of these things, and I'm, I'm not. Uh, claiming I'm above all of that either. I am saying, I think, as a, as a matter of plea, especially to students and a rising generation who are going to be carrying development forward into the 20th century, um, like our forebears who were willing and able to take on these really big tasks and suffer for it and make a, make a, a really big, deep commitment to trying to bring about greater social equality, um, for the 21st century, that has to be uh, a strategy married to how we figure out how to build institutions that are capable of Consolidating and then enforcing and then reproducing those kinds of gains as they occur. Okay. So what, so what we've been trying to do um, uh, with, over the last part is to, you know, over the last few years now with this building state capability program at the Kennedy School is to try and um, do everything from the sort of higher order analytics to explain how and why these kinds of challenges uh, persist, but also try to move forward to try and think about how we can. Um, reinvent the 20th, or upgrade, as it were, the 20th century aid architecture that we've inherited, which was largely designed to address technical and logistical problems, building dams and uh, other kinds of big engineering type tasks, or policy reform. And we've mentioned that's been spectacularly successful. But a lot of the times, as we found ourselves incrementally moving into the space of trying to engage much more contested and context-specific issues, uh, we've struggled. Because our aid architecture was not set up to do this stuff, and yet we seem to need, feel a need to shoehorn it uh, into taking on this whole array of new parts. So some of the more surreal consequences for this is that when you work as we have in places like the Solomon Islands, which uh, had a period where it went through um, its own version of something they call the tensions, which has uh, Irish overtones to it, but Nonetheless, when the international community's 
encountered that particular problem, cast its gaze over that particular problem, and deemed that the problem was the absence of the rule of law, right? And that was the weak justice systems. What was the response? The response was largely to do things like this: build wonderful two hundred million dollar courthouses, right? Which use locally sourced labor, locally sourced products, is situated just so, so it captures the diseases off the ocean, so it has a zero carbon footprint. Right? You cannot point a finger at anything in that building that is corrupt, that is shoddy workmanship or anything. It's, it's beautiful, right? And that's kind of the problem. <laughs> right? It's problematic in the sense that it's exactly what our systems want. It's procured perfectly. No, everything that was supposed to be contracted was done exactly as it should have been done. The problem is that actually isn't how you fix a justice system. The absence of a court, so that guys in white and in white. Uh, Wigs and black robes can show up with hammers and dispense something called justice, right? Doesn't inherently have to have to happen in something called a nice big Supreme Court building, but it's what we know how to do, right? So that's what we do. <laughs> you go two blocks literally around the corner from that nice jail, by that nice courthouse, you will see a state-of-the-art prison. It has eight people in it. That courthouse has been used two, twice in three years. Right? Um, the because the jail has to be built to Geneva standards through rightly uphold. Uh, human rights standards, it's got a gym, it's got three meals a day, it's got all sorts of nice things inside it. Again, which I am not criticizing. <laughs> um, what I am criticizing is the fact that we got to a world in which that's what we prioritize, that's what outsiders largely deem to be the problem, and the solution that we fitted to that problem was something we knew how to do. Right? When you actually go a third block around in that building, you would confront the uh, chief uh, police officer, the, the head of the local police. Um, in Honiara, the this is in Malaita, it's like a second island of uh, Solomon Island. And he's got literally got 800 files stacked from the, from the floor to the ceiling in his office of backlogs of cases. Right? But what most people are dealing with most of the time is not the absence of, 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 the, of a nice, squeaky clean, environmentally friendly, zero carbon footprint Supreme Court building. Right? It's the absence of everyday justice systems to be able to deal with most of the problems that most of them encounter most of the time. And if you started with what the problem actually looked like for everyday Solomon Islanders rather than what the problem looked like for elites, right, you'd end up with a very different pathway into what we would actually be doing in the name of development to build systems that actually work for people as opposed to systems that look nice in terms of our procurement systems and that we can tick lots of boxes and keep, out of, uh, keep things ticking over. So I think that's one major reason why this wedge between human development and institutional quality has, has widened and kept on widening is that we've succeeded in doing relatively simple things. We've been able to go from nothing to something in the case of building the schools in Arche that I mentioned before. And most of the villages that I'm sure you're familiar with have something you know, called a school that kids kind of show up to. And that's an infinite improvement over what was there before, which is probably nothing. Right? So you can go from nothing to something. You know, mathematically, by definition, you're going to see some big improvements. Right? And those are all good things. That's where you've got to start, maybe. Right? But what we haven't done, and why I think Development is only going to get harder. Is that we have to move from this world of logistics and administration to a world of the much more messy, much more uncertain, much more, to go back to Hirschman, much more of these conditions of initial ignorance, which are not going to require necessarily um, technocratic solutions. It's not going to require experts to fly in with the answer. Um, it's going to require protecting a political space domestically for negotiating what the, the priority should be among any number of different priorities, and then discerning collectively what the path forward might be. And that's very uncertain. It's very countercultural, especially for 
my students from Harvard Law School, for example, to think that your job as a lawyer is not just to go in your three-piece suit and dispense nice consulting advice on whether the labor law, administration law, and company law kind of looks right, right? We can pay you lots of money to do that, and you can feel very good about yourself and do very good legal work as defined that way. It's not stories of people shamelessly stealing money and running off and feathering their own nests and doing all that. This is the system doing, wanting them to do what they do and then doing it really, really well. Right? The problem with that isn't the problem. <laughs> They're not actually addressing what, the, what most people encounter as their problems most of the time. So with the work we've been doing with the World Bank, and just, just to show that I don't entirely work in an iron cage, that you can, in fact, find spaces within even these big bureaucratic systems to try and do things differently, you can, in fact, uh, structure analytical work. You can, in fact, structure research agendas that are all about trying to understand what the presenting problems are. What do they actually look like for most people most of the time? How can you actually engage with that? I use this on the miles because it's just, uh, you know, 250, 300,000 people in a small country in the middle of in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Right? It's not a, this. <laughs> this is not Nigeria. This is not Pakistan. This is not the countries where the consequences for the world, let alone for the domestic populations, are, are hanging in the balance. If, they, if, the, if the international community can't get its act together in, you know, in small countries like this, then I think it's very <laughs> our credibility and competence to be able to take on much bigger challenges is uh, very much in question. Let's finish up with a few other things, though, because I want to um, yeah, get this to work. Um, why are you not doing this? Okay, let's try that. Um, uh, I've spoken most of that. I don't know why I don't do it. What do we do about all this? Um, what I think we need to do is, is to start with a question, and I will, start, I will answer my own question by saying what, what I said at the beginning. I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> it's probably the first time we've ever heard those words after a viable bank official, but I don't know. Um, I really don't. But I'm not, I'm not clueless either. <laughs> um, in the sense that I think there's lots of good work that has been done by our forebears, the giants on whose shoulders we stand, uh, who's mostly forgotten now in a world where we're just obsessed with presentism and forget that many of these questions were burning questions in the post-colonial era. Um, reading, reading a lot of that material as part of your own professional uh, training, I think, is a really important thing to do. But even if it had a very different philosophy and ontology and, and, and teleology built into it, I think we nonetheless can, in fact, learn a lot from the past. We can also um, engage with um, a lot of the recent modern scholarship that's coming out of everywhere from business schools to, um, to policy schools and to uh, a lot of NGOs, a lot of think tanks, a lot of the consulting groups even that are now uh, doing some really interesting work on trying to help people do stuff. Right? being some, not, not indifferent or dismissive of this thing called policy, but really trying to help organizations, particular subunits of ministries and governments in particular places, trying to fix the post office in Tunisia, trying to fix that, the roads in, uh, in Laos, right? trying to actually make sure that potholes get filled in Nigeria. Right? Some really interesting stuff focused very concretely in the short run about actually solving a presenting problem that people themselves nominate and prioritize as the issues that they care about now. Right? And using that as the starting point for building up a much richer uh, store of skills for doing this kind of work. Another big metaphor we use here is that this kind of work we're talking about here is the equivalent of organizational juggling. It's the equivalent of getting a whole system to be able to do something that you only learn by doing it. Right? I, I can give you, and, and like Rach was giving this lecture, he would give you a little three minute spiel of how to juggle. And then he would toss three balls to Tom and say, to me, Tom, can't juggle. 
And what Megan's saying is, I've just given you the best ever lecture on three minutes spiel on how to juggle. Now you should be able to do it, right? And of course, the balls go everywhere, right? And I mean, all of us that have tried to learn a foreign language, all of us that have tried to ride bicycles, were all awful when we started. And by persistence and practice, our awfulness became just bad, and then our bad became okay, and then our okay, depending on how assiduous we were in our practice, became okay, right? That's how big organizational systems that provide electricity and air conditioning and computing and nice fancy degrees from 800-year-old universities acquired their capability to do that kind of stuff. It wasn't because they followed a blueprint, or because they followed evidence that told them what to do. They collectively juggled until the system had its own little juggling thing down, really down, so that it was then immune to people that were starting to put pressure on that kind of system. So a lot of this more applied work that practitioners are doing is about starting small, helping people to learn to juggle, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, helping them to be able to solve the actual problems that they confront, and helping them just as a matter of psychology to be able to show that over a 100-day period, for example, a wonderful group in Washington uh, called Results focuses on precisely that, on saying, here's now, here's 100 days, I don't, we don't, we don't, the sustainability of this is someone else's problem, all we're going to do is to help you get stuff done in the next 100 days. And that's transformational for many people who've never been in a work environment where they actually got something done, <laughs> they achieved something, they took a situation that was awful and made it a little bit better. Right? So you, these kind of organisations are now starting to pop up everywhere. And what we're trying to do effectively is create a, a global social movement for people that are really trying to focus very pragmatically, but also incorporating the, the, the formal social science and history of all this stuff along the way as part of how we, how we build that, that strategy for doing that. So, um, let me... <laughs> what we're trying to do is, uh, just to have a nice final little riff on the analytics of this, is to recognize that most of what we're doing in this space of ignorance, most of what we're doing is inherently going to have huge, big, standard deviations that accompany the mean, <laughs> right? Most of what we're trying to do, when we're doing things like macroeconomic reform, we're trying to figure out whether to raise or lower interest rates, kind of by definition, what macroeconomic types do is be able to work in worlds where there's pretty low standard deviations, pretty good technical knowledge that if you do this, you will get that. <laughs> That's how we fight inflation, for example, right? Um, but for a lot of the stuff in governance reform, legal reform, justice reform, institutions and organizations of any kind, it's going to work great for some people. It's going to be diabolically bad for others. Right? This is the book that Tom generously mentioned that we uh, won this big prize for in Indonesia. Looking at a, a big uh, community development program, we documented pretty much exactly that. You could tell up any number of stories you wanted to, depending on whether you're a fan or a foe of this kind of work, precisely because that both were true. Right? Things did work fantastically somewhere. And if you just cherry-picked your way to that, you could tell all sorts of happy stories. If you thought this was awful, you could hang out in a bunch of villages down here and tell very happy, unhappy stories about the whole program was going to hell in a handbasket and should be shut down now. Right? The reality was huge, big standard deviations and big complexities as a country like Indonesia in its post-autocratic moment had to learn democracy, had to learn to juggle. Right? No adults in Indonesia had ever stood up in a community meeting and made a reasoned case for why public money should be spent this way rather than that way. Right? We think that's normal. It was not normal for Indonesians. They were jailed or worse if they ever did, uh, had uh, tried to challenge a public official. In this, in this seismic uh, moment in the late 90s when there was this moment to try and consolidate local democracy, there were these huge big, um, big variances with regards to how the projects that entered that space were faring. And the task of these projects, uh, <laughs> implicitly if not explicitly, was essentially how do we learn from that? Right? What are these guys doing well? This positive deviant space. What are these guys doing that can help these guys down here? 
right? Not importing solutions from the outside, having the systems hardwired into the very way in which the projects were designed so that accountability and feedback mechanisms in real time could try and flip those guys up to the other side, right? So over time, the distribution didn't look like that. The distribution starts to look like that, right? Still superstars up here, but this, the groups that had previously been down here, over time, iterating their way up. Right? That's essentially the story we're trying to tell from Indonesia. I think one can tell versions of that, the collective juggling story like that, of a whole range of institutions. I bet you could tell the same story of the National Health Service here in the UK, <laughs> dare I suggest. <laughs> right? Um, this is how I think institutions acquire their capability to do stuff, by doing it, by having it being required of them and routinizing it such that these kinds of uh, feedback mechanisms and loops become the basis on which the learning happens. So that's what we're really trying to, to do now. This is a whole bunch of other stuff which I won't go through. We're not claiming we've invented this. There's a whole bunch of good and great people uh, many decades that have been working on variations on these kind of things. What we are doing, though, in, in terms of uh, trying to provide some rallying point principles around which people can begin to engage with this is to articulate and stress four different things. I've mentioned implicitly all of these things already. Starting with local problems for local solutions. Right? Starting with so starting with figuring out what in fact the problem could be. And that can take months, if not years, actually, to figure out what the problem can be. We think we know what the problem is. We think we're not an expert if we can't tell what the problem is. Right? But, I don't know, should be the default starting point. <laughs> and if you start from that point, then you have to figure out what the problem is. And once you have to figure out what the problem is, then you have to fit the solution to that particular problem. Then you do this positive deviant stuff. You look at the standard deviations, the variance that accompanies all of your efforts to try and engage in these things. Why is there such, why, where, and who is this variation occurring? What can we learn from that? How can we build in feedback mechanisms that enable these adaptations to be made in real time? How can we keep that cycle going over time? And then how can we use that to build a larger community of practice within the projects themselves, but within the, within the nation and potentially around the world? So this kind of stuff is what we're kind of doing ourselves now, effectively, if we're right. <laughs> we should be doing the same kind of thing with our, um, in our own attempts to try and, and build a larger uh, community of people doing this around the world. We now have a bunch of uh, country programs in the World Bank that are trying to do this stuff, and it's really risky work for people trying to do this in a country like Nigeria. Right? If you start with, I don't know, that's not how you <laughs> win big round right? It's not how you go into annual review saying, how did it go? I don't know. <laughs> Right? There's a lot of them that might not work. Right? We don't know whether that standard deviation thing, someone somewhere is going to get a finger pointed at them for screwing up. Right? So how do you protect those people and to enable the, the learning uh, to occur, which as we agreed upon with things like learning bikes, learning languages, and the like. Um, I just mean that you've got to be awful before you do it. These are the four things we're trying to do. I think they, I won't go through this, but I think this is very different from how most of the World Bank and the big donor agencies traditionally have functioned. I think it's also uh, different in, uh, with the way that many of the small NGOs have worked as well. What we're trying to do essentially is leverage a lot of the ideas that have been pioneered through here and figure out how we can get it to work through the big systems because ultimately, where I am uh, shamelessly a World Bank guy, so I believe in doing things at scale. I think if you're going to achieve big uh, wholesale social change in countries, by definition, that means that has to happen at scale. And so the big the breakthroughs that I think are happening, even in your own country, uh, one of the great presentations from two weeks ago was from one of the senior officials at DFID, talking about how amongst uh, different senior staff, the, the entire route to branch uh, 
philosophy of how they do what they do is being re-examined. And a lot of the, if not this exactly, these kinds of ideas are exactly what they are thinking about doing. So I'm going to conclude by saying I think this is where, uh, where I started, by saying I don't really know where this is going. <laughs> I'm wagering that while people um, will figure out that and will come to their own recognition as they already have, that much of what really needs to be done is not so much tinkering around in the policy design space, or at least that's a second-order problem. The first-order problem is what the systems themselves can actually do. How do we stress test that? How do we get a better handle on being able to measure uh, and assess the capability of those institutions to do what they're already doing now, but more ambitiously and as development, uh, almost by definition, starts to happen? How can we correspondingly build up the underlying capability of those institutions to do what needs to be done? Because those problems aren't going away. The more we succeed in putting up a new store, every new road we pay, every new cell phone tower we put up, every new health clinic we build, all of that is just intensifying the expectations and the demands of people on this system. I'm part of a big team doing a, a big report on the Middle East right now. And this is exactly the, the tone and terms of the debate that we're trying to set with this big report on the, probably the most fraught and consequential region of the world right now. Right? What can Middle Eastern countries learn from their own domestic experience about why schools are working great over here and terribly over there? Rather than constantly depending on outsiders to come in and tell them what's wrong with their school and come up with yet another laundry list that looks remarkably like the same laundry list that people in 1972 came up with, that literally happened in a meeting last week. And someone read out a list of reforms that had been recommended by a World Bank report in 1972 and what chills down people's spines was almost word for word what we're articulating today. Right? So this collective uh, capacity to forget, our collective inability to be able to close the gap between what we think the system should be able to do and what we are wanting to do, I think very much is the 21st century development agenda. And I invite all of you, especially students, to be part of that process. Thanks very much.